Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, November 14th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historian Manisha Sinha, in conversation with Eric Foner, discusses her book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you all for coming this evening. It's nice to see such a uh, good crowd here to discuss the history of the movement to abolish slavery in the United States and to welcome Professor Manisha Sinha here. Uh, I should add that uh, Professor Sinha, some years ago, was actually a graduate student at Columbia, and I supervised her dissertation. (laughs) And so I am particularly happy to see her achieving such great uh, notoriety and success as an American uh, historian. So um, I will engage in, I'll ask her some questions, engage in conversation for a while. Then, as you heard from Dale Gregory, uh, we will gather up some of the questions that people have Uh, written down on cards and try to answer some of them. So we hope it's an interesting evening. So, Manisha, um, there are a lot of books about abolitionism, as you well know. In fact, you know, you have have a command of the literature, very impressive in your your book. But why did you decide a few years ago that there was need for a new history of the movement to abolish slavery? Yes, so, um, you know, it is a topic that has been written about by many historians, and uh, I was just unsatisfied with the ways in which historians had um, written about abolition. Um, a lot of it was about particular groups and factions or individual figures. There was no sense of uh, abolition as a movement, as a social movement. Uh, so the literature was somewhat, uh, you know, uh, fractured in, in, in different different little pieces. Um, but also, I think... Uh, people's views of abolition tended to be, um, you know, either they were caricatured as these sort of radical fanatics and extremists, or on the other hand, uh, you know, they were criticized as being perhaps a little too conservative, being sort of bourgeois, middle-class, white northerners. And I think both views were not particularly accurate. And even though a lot of work had been done on African-Americans and women in the movement, it hadn't led to a sort of re-evaluation of the movement as a whole. So I decided I would write a book about uh, blacks in the abolition movement. Uh, Then I realized that in order to uncover their significance in the movement, I could not just write about them. I had to write about the movement as a whole. And then when I started writing that, I realized I couldn't just look at the period before the Civil War. I had to go right back to the revolutionary era when you had the first abolitionists uh, speaking and writing against uh, slavery. So it became the book, big book that it is. Okay. And um, as, uh, as Manisha said, uh, the abolitionist sort of reputation among historians have had a, a kind of strange up and down. Uh, you know, when I was in school, they were, as you said, considered irresponsible fanatics who helped to bring about a needless civil war. 
various psychological theories. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison hated his father. That's why he was against slavery. Or, um, you know, they were suffering from status deprivation. All these ways to try to figure out why people went off so far off the beam. Then there was a moment, I think, in the civil rights era where suddenly they became precursors of the civil rights movement. But very quickly after that, as you said, they were seen as not radical enough. Right. Uh, they, they were racists within the abolitionist movement, and they were too bourgeois. So what's, what's your take on this in the sense of, you know, what's the balance between uh, admiring them for their courage and uh, farsightedness and um, understanding that they're people of their own time and naturally they're going to have uh, qualities that today look like um, flaws in one in one sense. What, right. What's your, you know, the, the balance you try to strike there? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, in the uh, 1960s, during the civil rights era, you have that brief moment when abolitionists are sort of resurrected as, uh, you know, far-seeing and, you know, people who are committed to racial equality uh, at another time. Uh, but it was very quickly di- dismissed as kind of neo-abolitionist history. That became uh, a term of, you know, of dismissal. Uh, any uh, person writing at that time that had a favorable view of the movement was dismissed as the neo-abolitionist. Um, and that was quite common, I think, right down to when I actually uh, wrote this book. Um, so when I started writing it, I didn't want to write a kind of a vindicationist history. I, I actually wanted to go back to the sources, and what I found was actually far more interesting than kind of a simple um, sort of triumphalist history. Uh, you're right, they were a lot more complicated. There are a lot of divisions in the movement. They fight over tactics, over ideology. Um, when there are instances of racial paternalism, you have African-Americans calling out white abolitionists on that. Uh, women who feel uh, certain abolitionists are not behind women's rights are very willing to critique them. Um, so I, I really wanted to capture the whole movement in its complexity, its diversity, its richness. Uh, and I thought that it was actually, uh, in a way, a kind of a prototypical American radical movement and that these people were really, in a way, the unsung heroes and heroines of American democracy. So that perspective is there, but I, I don't want to so simply write a simple vindicationist history. I think you taught us, Eric, that uh, <laughs> we should not be going into, our, into the archives with our preconceptions and the questions already there, that we should let our sources, uh, in a way, dictate uh, what we write. And what I found was so much richer and, and so much more complex than what I even expected. Well, it certainly is a rich history which uses an incredible array of sources of all kinds to kind of paint this uh, panoramic picture. So uh, you succeeded in what you tried to do. So as you said, uh, you decided not to just deal with the decade or two before the Civil War. I mean, when, when does a movement against slavery, I'm not talking about maybe one person writing a pamphlet at one point, but when does a movement against slavery begin in either the American colonies or the United States? Where do you start? Yes, yeah, so um, I have to say that I, I, you know, I sort of went back to the colonial era and even to early modern Europe. And there you do have uh, a few stray voices here and there. Uh, but I divided the book into you know, two waves of abolition. The first wave around the 18th century, late 18th century, early 19th, and the second wave, which is the sort of classical pre-Civil War period. 
Um, and in the first wave, I argue that you can, you can actually see a movement there. You can see organizations, you can see tactics and ideas being developed, you can see African Americans writing, participating at that time already. So this notion that somehow the revolutionary era, uh, you know, people were far more paternalistic, that in fact, uh, uh, black people were not involved in that early phase of abolition, I found to be not entirely correct. Um, that I found that they were at times maybe not members of these societies, but they're very active in sort of launching many of the law, law cases against slavery, very active in assisting sometimes people uh, win their freedom. So black leaders, particularly clergymen, you know, of um, prominent black churches like the AME, the church, the historic church that was attacked in Charleston by a white supremacist, uh, the founders of that church were all black abolitionists. And they're writing pamphlets, they're in touch with the leaders of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, etc. So using the movement perspective, I realized that we have to look at the first wave of abolition also uh, as an important sort of foundational moment uh, for the movement. And, and in a way, it was really the antebellum abolitionists who led me there because people like Garrison, etc., never say that they have you know, started the abolition movement. In fact, he always talks about uh, the Quakers, the early societies um, that influenced him um, and African-American abolitionists. The, uh, the early abolition of slavery in northern states in this revolutionary period uh, is pushed by organizations like the New York, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, the New York Manumission Society. Um, are they... Um, you know, there's a kind of complicated literature about them. Some people, they're all white, right? They, those organizations yeah. did not have black members, although black people cooperated with them. Mm-hmm. Many of them are quite upper crust, right? Um, do you see them as a fundamentally, uh, you know, conservative, um, uh, uh, paternalistic, or do you see them as really the cutting edge of what was possible politically at that moment, the 1780s, the 1790s? Um, you know, you're right. I mean, a lot of them are lawyers, for instance. They're mm-hmm. the ones who are prosecuting cases of, um, you know, slaves being illegally sold down south, uh, especially, you know, northern states pass these gradual emancipation laws that simply free children um, of enslaved people, not the people, not enslaved people themselves. Uh, so it is a very long, drawn out, gradual process that allowed slaveholders to try to kind of bypass these laws. And um, just looking at the records of these societies, I mean, the New York Manumission Society records are right here in the New York Historical Society. And but it I wasn't think- in this building. It wasn't in this building, but I came to the old one to do my research. And I remember it was a microphone, and I kind of begged them to let me see the actual records, and they did. So I'm very grateful to the New York Historical Society. But the point is that, um, you know, they were predominantly white. There was no restriction for black membership in these societies. The only restriction, for instance, that the Pennsylvania Abolition Society had was against slaveholders. If you were a slaveholder, you could not join the society, uh, which made sense. But there were slaveholders in the New York Society. But in the New York... John Jay. Yes, New York Manumission Society did allow them, but then they freed their slaves, like John Jay and others who who owned slaves and joined the New York Manumission Society. Um, The Pennsylvania Abolition Society ultimately had 
um, one black member, and that was Robert Purvis, who was an early black abolitionist. Um, but it seemed to me that they had a lot of times at their meetings, they would have African-Americans come and speak to them, uh, would have African-Americans, you know, write to them and raise concerns. So what was interesting about these early abolitionists was that they rejected the program of colonization, which is the American colonization society. The idea was to colonize all free blacks back to Africa. Um, and there were some people who thought that you would get rid of the problem of slavery and race. Uh, but it was kind of a racist program because it couldn't imagine <laughs> black people as equal citizens in the American Republic. It still visualized a lily white republic. So these early abolitionists for all their sort of elitism, rejected this program, and they came out for black citizenship. And for me, that was really important, um, that at that point, they are already talking about black equality and equal citizenship rights, you know, something that we still struggle for today. So I, I did see them, as you put it, uh, as the cutting edge of the anti-slavery movement uh, even then. The uh, New York Society, as you know, set up the African Free Schools. So it was not mm-hmm. just a question of not sending them to Africa, but actually helping people become equipped to be citizens and participate in the society, right. which is, uh, w- was quite an advanced kind of view at that, at that time. Absolutely. So it is an ideology of, quote, racial uplift, but it was one that was shared sometimes uh, by early black leaders. Uh, And education was seen as a part of citizenship. And of course, African-Americans were not allowed in many schools. And when public school systems start being founded in the North, uh, they're all segregated. And uh, one of the things that the abolition movement actually does in the North is not just fight against slavery, but also against Jim Crow and segregation Mm -hmm. uh, in the school systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is, you know, the legacy of the early abolitionists who began these uh, free African schools uh, modeled after the early Quaker schools uh, for black children. Now, you you said a a little while ago that you had started out wanting to write a book about black abolitionists, which... Uh, you're quite right, is kind of pointless to separate out a movement that was based on people working together. But um, one of the themes of your book is the central role of African-Americans in this movement. It's not just white philanthropists helping black people. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say was the sort of main contributions of African-Americans to this struggle over the decades that you, uh, you know, are writing about? Yes, so uh, I found that in, in order to to really uncover the significance of African Americans in the abolition movement, one had to uh, sort of see their relationship to whites in the movement. Uh, one had to recover the sort of history of abolition as a radical interracial social movement. Uh, and I found that it was many times African Americans on the ground, but even in their writings, which had been really neglected by historians, um, that they were really at the cutting edge of the movement, the vanguard of the movement in terms of tactics and ideology. So for instance, just to give you an example, um, it's really African Americans who first start writing against the pseudoscience of race. Uh, They take this very seriously. Uh, They even take on Jefferson 
and his notes in the state of Virginia. Um, and this was actually quite a bold thing to do because, you know, you are criticizing somebody who, you know, the author of the Declaration of Independence, President, etc. cetera. Uh, they were very careful to confront uh, ideas, uh, you know, masquerading as sort of intellectual ideas uh, as, uh, on, on racial inferiority. Um, and then it's white abolitionists who pick that up from them. Even the sort of critique of colonization, uh, the American Convention of Abolition Societies, um, they have a few members who are actually sympathetic to the colonization proposal and they think that's the way to go. But it's really African Americans who come into their meetings and completely reject this idea that convince white abolitionists that colonization is not an anti-slavery scheme, that it is more pro-slavery in its implications. Uh, and this influence does not just stop there. You know, historians had pointed this out earlier. But what I found was that all through the movement, right up to the eve of the Civil War, African-Americans, especially the fugitive slaves who joined the movement and become abolitionists, play a, a central role in sort of pushing forward abolition and its ideas so, for instance, it's really the fugitive slaves and their experiences with slavery that is an effective response to pro-slavery ideology. Because at that time, many Southern slaveholders are claiming and, you know, they're constructing these elaborate arguments on why slavery is, quote, a positive good um, and how they are benevolent and kind and paternalistic to their enslaved people, that in fact they treat their enslaved uh, people better than white workers in the North uh, are treated by their employers. Uh, and the effective repose to this comes from fugitive slaves who can really recount the horrors, the terrors uh, of slavery. And it is their slave narratives that I argue in the book become kind of the movement literature uh, of abolition. And besides that, I, I would also argue that, you know, instances of slave resistance Certainly, fugitivity, simply running away from slavery, voting with your feet, has an enormous impact on abolition um, in radicalizing the movement, in, in sort of broadening conceptions of laws to inc- include African Americans. Um, that's a, just a, that. not to interrupt, but that's yeah. one of the really interesting insights or provocative uh, original ideas in the book, which is to put slave resistance in as part, in a sense, of a broad anti-slavery struggle. It's not Mm -hmm. that the anti-slavery movement is not just something in the North, Mm -hmm. that the slaves' actions themselves are contributing to the development of the movement. Absolutely. So, um, you know, this entire generation of fugitive slave abolitionists, you know, we know of Douglas and we know of Harriet Tubman, who I think was going to be in the $20 bill, but I don't think that's going to happen now. That seems to have been put on the shelf. (laughs) That's been put on the shelf. But we know of them. They're they're probably the two most famous. But there was a a whole slew of of black abolitionist men and women who came into the movement and helped, you know, sort of... uh, um, became anti-slavery lectures, you know, lecturers, uh, spread its message, not just in the United States, but also abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, and instances of slave rebellion, like the shipboard rebellions on the Amistad and Creole that became, you know, um, huge sort of uh, uh, issues of controversy, uh, both in national politics and international law and diplomacy. You can see how slave resistance really kind of pushes forward uh, the anti-slavery project by just looking at some of these 
uh, important rebellions mm -hmm. uh, and important shipboard rebellions, but also something like Nat Turner's rebellion, etc. These all have an enormous impact uh, on the abolition movement. Right. And of course, the very act of running away from slavery is in itself a statement about slavery. And um, without fugitive slaves, you wouldn't have had the fugitive slave law. You wouldn't have the, the fugitive slave controversy, the Underground Railroad, et cetera, et cetera. This leads me to a slightly different question, uh, since you mentioned uh, some of these leading figures, Douglas Tubman. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy. I don't need to remind you about um, public memorial statues, Confederate leaders yeah. all over the place. Um, I was trying to think how, you know, maybe you didn't quite study this scientifically as you were doing your research, but um, how many statues of abolitionists are there around? Now, we have one of Frederick Douglass right in front right. of this building, right. and there's another one of Frederick Douglass at 110th Street, but um, with the exception of Douglass, maybe there's a statue of Harry's Tubman somewhere, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem like they occupy a very prominent place in the public kind of presentation of history that people encounter out there with memorial statues, buildings, etc. Absolutely. You know, I think it's important for us to um, maybe think about uh, constructing some statues, <laughs> uh, some monuments to the forgotten abolitionists. Um, I, I wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the New York Daily News where I said that maybe we should have been raising statues to people who fought against slavery rather than for it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that might be a good idea. Yeah. Um, but being in Boston, of course, um, there in Boston Commons, you have uh, statues to to Garrison and, and some of the prominent uh, abolitionists Charles in New Sumner England. Charles somewhere. Sumner yeah. has one at Harvard Square, uh, which is a little hypocritical because <laughs> they didn't give him a position at Harvard Law School because of his connections with the black community. Um, but now they have a statue for, for him. I guess that makes up for it. Uh, but um, Theodore Weld does he have a statue anywhere? I don't think Weld does. <laughs> you know, and Weld was a very kind. Theodore Weld is just one of those amazing abolitionist that people haven't heard of. He was the husband of Angelina Grimke, the famous uh, abolitionist feminist. Uh, you know, I always tell my husband that, you know, if there's one man I'd leave him for, it would probably be Theodore Weld. So he's kind of happy that he's dead and long gone. But, I, but Weld was a very retiring kind of man. And when the abolitionist movement split over the question of women's rights, he kind of sort of stepped away from the limelight. And so he's one of those forgotten figures that we really... Um, you know, need to think about. Um, but yes, I mean, this, this entire controversy over Confederate memorials uh, reminds us how much history we have actually forgotten and what is the kind of what are the kind of myths that we preserve about American history that have, you know, very little to do with, with uh, what actually happened. Um, and so, you know, we are historians, so we want people of course, to read more history. But I really think it's important for, for ordinary American citizens, actually, to, to think a little bit about how um, American democracy has progressed. Um, and, and I think abolitionists really played an important now, now, part in that. President Obama, uh, when he talked about history, which was not all that much, but he did, uh, did sort of assimilate the abolitionists into a view of American history of sort of racial progress over the years. Um, 
which was kind of interesting. Uh, I don't think President Trump has said anything about the abolitionists, to my recollection. Well, he thinks Frederick Douglass is doing a great job. Well, that's true. He thought Douglass was still around, but he most... I I agree. I think he's doing a great job. He mostly seems to like Robert E. Lee, actually, but... um, He's an honorable uh, man, yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of forgotten people who uh, deserve to be remembered uh, much, much more than they are. That's uh, that's for sure. Um, You know, again, in your book, you emphasize sort of a continuity between the very early movement and then all the way up through, it goes into and through the Civil War. Uh, But usually historians maybe wrongly kind of posit a break, or at least you do also talk about a new movement that Mm -hmm. emerged in the 1830s. What what was new at that point compared to what had come on before, come before? Yes, I mean, I do see it as two waves. Uh, There are some continuities. You know, there are actually people whose careers bridge the two waves, right? right? There are actually abolitionists who are around long enough uh, to join Garrison uh, and who have been members of the earlier abolition societies. But I think what's new about uh, the sort of 1820s and 1830s is this sort of... um, the, the interracialism becomes far more organized. So when uh, the New England Anti-Slavery Society is founded and the American Anti-Slavery Society is founded, they incorporate uh, many of the early black abolitionist organizations like the Massachusetts General Colored Association. Um, black abolitionists are a very important part of the organization itself. Um, <clears throat> and they are, you know, not just... Uh, members of it, they play leadership roles in the new organizations, and they bring to the movement uh, a certain kind of militancy, uh, a certain kind of radical rhetoric, which Garrison adopts. And, you know, when people hear Garrison, they're a little stunned because they've never heard a white man speak in such strong and radical terms against slavery. And you can see him adopting, um, you know, David Walker's rhetoric, Nathaniel Paul's rhetoric, a lot of these early black abolitionists. In fact, when Garrison went to England in the 1830s uh, and he met um, uh, Lord Buxton, who is an anti-slavery parliamentarian, uh, you know, Buxton is stunned and, and Garrison is wondering why he's so surprised. And Buxton tells him, I thought you were a black man. <laughs> and uh, Garrison said, I'll take that as the highest compliment of my work. Um, so there is a much stronger interracialism um, in the 1830s era. It's also more radical uh, in terms of demanding immediate, uncompensated abolition. No more gradual um, you know, abolition laws. Uh, they they define slavery as 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 such a um, egregious instance of um, you know evil that it should be gotten rid of immediately. And I think a lot of those ideas are coming out of early black abolitionist uh, pamphlets like David Walker's Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World or Freedom's Journal, which was a black abolitionist uh, newspaper published right here in New York in 1827. Um, It lasts for a couple of years, and then you have Garrison's uh, The Liberator coming up in 1831. So it's it's, it's a far more radical movement. Um, And in the first issues of The Liberator, Garrison, who's a pacifist, is defending Nat Turner's rebellion. Uh, He is um, writing favorable reviews of David Walker's pamphlet, which is seen as very incendiary and radical. In fact, most Southern governments... uh, uh, want it to be banned, and, and they, they send inquiries uh, to Boston to see how they can stop 
this material coming out from New England. Um, so it's a different kind of movement. And then, of course, eventually it includes women, mm-hmm. which the first movement, even though you had women abolitionists uh, who wrote against slavery, they were not members of these societies. Abolition at that point becomes far more a movement of, you know, what one historian has called passionate outsiders. Uh, it's it's women, it's blacks, it's it's fairly radical. And it's a uh, movement for human rights, not absolutely. just the end of slavery, right? Absolutely. It's a movement that is uh, for a black citizenship. And I found this term being used in a far more consistent fashion by abolitionists because they're talking about disfranchised sections of the nation uh, and they talk about human rights. They have a journal called Human Rights. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and, and our notion that somehow human rights is a modern conception, a 20th century conception, you know, I argue in the book that you can trace its roots right back to the abolition movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, the, the early women's rights movement comes out of the abolitionist movement, as you know. And, um, and I think it's important, yeah, to, as you emphasize, that your, your point about governments trying to suppress uh, David Walker's pamphlet or suppress Garrison's newspaper, yeah. th- that they were fighting for civil liberties for everybody. In other words, it wasn't just the, the right to freedom of speech was an abolitionist you know, focus. And so... They are developing the idea that slavery is a threat to everybody's freedom in the United States, not just the slaves who are suffering the most, but the freedom of white people is also uh, under attack by the institution of slavery, which begins to uh, develop more and more support among people who may not be, uh, you know, totally excited by the idea of equal black citizenship, but do want to defend the basic liberties that the country claims to um, respect. Yes, I mean, as the movement grows, you find a lot of fellow travelers, a lot of white northerners who are now concerned about the reaction to abolition. Because in the 1830s, you have a lot of, um, you know, uh, anti-abolitionist mob action, eventually leading to the death, actually, of Elijah Lovejoy, an editor, a newspaper editor, um, an abolitionist editor. And um, all this connects the cause of the slave with that of civil liberties and the fate of American democracy itself. And in a way, when Lincoln says these things uh, in the 1850s and then during the Civil War, that connection is being made in the North right there. There are all these contestations between uh, Southern laws of slavery and whether they will be implemented in the North uh, with, you know, northern laws of emancipation. They're coming into conflict. Uh, the federal fugitive slave law gives these southern slave laws a certain extraterritoriality, but people in the north don't much care for that. And certainly the fugitive slave law of 1850, which requires ordinary northern white citizens to assist slaveholders uh, under penalty of law to recover their slaves, uh, does give a you know rise to reaction against uh, against slavery. So the abolitionists, I think, as the movement grows, are quite adept at linking their movement with some of these causes that uh, the average northern white citizen 
uh, felt they could get behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when we think about the Republican majority in the North that elected Abraham Lincoln in 1860, you know, it just doesn't happen overnight. And the Republican Party is formed in the 1850s. And yes, there are all these political issues about the expansion of slavery, the fugitive slave controversies. But a lot of that groundwork was done by abolitionists for decades before that happened. Yeah, one of the things you can hear that in just the way Manish is describing this is how the, the movement, all the different tactics and approaches, they, they didn't, even, even though we sometimes sim, oversimplify, but, well, Garrison believed in moral suasion and Louis Tapan believed in politics and mm-hmm. this guy believed in the armed struggle or something. But in fact, the movement had all these things at the same time. Some right. people are do, take, making illegal actions, like mm-hmm. helping fugitive slaves is illegal. Right. Uh, most of them are doing perfectly legal things, like giving speeches, publishing newspapers, right. petitioning the legislature, mm-hmm. go, you know, going around uh, getting petitions signed, sent to Congress. Mm-hmm. So they, they're sort of operating on various levels of militancy and legality mm-hmm. at the same time, which is rather unique for a social movement, I think. I know. I think that's, that, as I said, you know, a lot of people see the factionalism within the abolition movement as a sign of its weakness. They could never agree on anything, so they couldn't get anything done. But actually, I think it was a sign of strength. So you have people, you know, as you said, you know, petitioning women who are not citizens are really what Garrison called the foot soldiers of the movement. They're the ones gathering signatures, and they're outsigning men. Uh, by a two-to-one proportion in the abolitionist petitions. Uh, so it becomes a way for different people to enter the movement at different levels. Um, and eventually you have anti-slavery politicians who are then taking up this question in Congress. Uh, people like Charles Sumner, um, you know, uh, even William Henry Seward, who later on became uh, fairly conservative. But as governor of New York, he is willing to give fugitive slaves certain protections, is willing to give them trial by jury in the state of New York. Um, so it really does have an effect. And on the other hand, you have uh, abolitionists, in, even those who are uh, self-confessed pacifists, you know, sort of uh, resisting um, the rendition of fugitive slaves. And you can see throughout the 1850s, the movement is becoming... Uh, more radical. Certainly people are invoking, you know, violence and self-defense. They don't want um, uh, free black communities being raided by slave catchers uh, and enslaved people who may have escaped, you know, 20 years ago, may have a free wife, children, etc., being rendered back uh, to slavery. Um, And you can see the fight over slavery in Kansas where people think, you know, even white democracy is under threat because slaveholders from Missouri are constantly stealing elections in order to make sure that it is a pro-slavery state. And this is, this is where John Brown comes out of, you know. He begins with forming a black militia in Springfield, Massachusetts, to resist the implementation of the fugitive slave law. He fights in Kansas against pro-slavery settlers and slaveholders, and eventually plans the Harpers Ferry Raid. So you can see abolition becoming more radicalized, I think, on the eve of the war. And I sort of argue in the book that the abolitionists kind of begin a war against slaveholders uh, long before the Civil War actually begins. Yes, violence was uh, sort of escalating during the 1850s in Kansas, obviously. We know bleeding Kansas, but the fugitive slave renditions, violent Mm -hmm. acts there. 
Um, the country did seem to be careening in that direction. The book ends with the Civil War and um, goes to the end of the Civil War, and, or at least the middle of the Civil War. <laughs> eve of the Civil War. <laughs> the eve of the Civil War, okay. Um, yeah. But I guess that raises the question of how, how much credit or how much responsibility would you give to the abolitionist movement for the end of slavery in the United States? Was it simply yeah. the war? I mean, if, you know, as it was a war measure, emancipation, as you know. Uh, or, you know, should we really credit the abolitionists for bringing this about? That's a great question. You know, we often think of the destruction of slavery as simply a kind of a military measure, as mm-hmm. a kind of a wartime emergency, uh, a wartime decision. You know, it's a military decision during the war. And it was that. But, you know, a lot of wars have been fought in history, including the American Revolution, and slavery has not ended. Uh, I think the fact that abolition is on the agenda at that time has a lot to do with the abolitionist movement and the ways in which abolitionists had fought for emancipation. So I, I argue in the book that the American abolitionist moment actually unfolds in this sort of 100-year drama of grassroots activism, um, freedom claims being made in law, in, in law uh, in and um, you know uh, in literature, in popular culture, uh, that we have to take into account all that to understand that emancipation is on the agenda. So, and then during the war itself, of course, abolitionists are constantly uh, pushing, goading uh, the president Lincoln uh, for uh, towards emancipation. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you have argued also, it's part of Lincoln's greatness that he was pushed uh, to eventually inhabit abolition ground, not just in terms of emancipation, but also towards the end of his life, black rights, because that was a very important part of mm-hmm. uh, the abolitionist agenda. So I argue that, you know, there have been two instances, the Haitian Revolution and the Civil War, where you've had this sort of immediate, you know, large-scale emancipation. And neither can be sort of possible without the actions of the enslaved themselves and um, abolitionist activism. Uh, You can see those things coming together in both these instances. Um, So I I do critique historians who see this uh, as, as simply a war measure. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lincoln himself says this, right? He mm-hmm. says, I have done nothing. The Union Army and Garrison and his people have achieved all. Uh, he was very modest. Uh, mm-hmm. he, but he recognized uh, the important role of abolitionists as sort of mm-hmm. uh, pioneers in the, in the movement to destroy slavery. We are going to turn in a minute to the questions from the floor. But let me just ask you one more thing, which is yeah. uh, unfair since you just recently, thank you, just recently published this book. But what, what is your next project? So my next project, I'm actually uh, working on it right now, so it's not too unfair. (laughs) But uh, I'm planning to write a history of Reconstruction. Again, following your footsteps. Another history of Reconstruction. Uh, Another history of Reconstruction. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I think uh, since Eric Foner's magnum opus on Reconstruction, there's been a lot of work uh, on Reconstruction in the West, subjugation of Plains Indians, on, on, on women's history, etc. And I, I was thinking of doing uh, 
uh, a new history of Reconstruction, not to replace uh, the uh, gold standard. <laughs> the more the merrier. The gold standard of Reconstruction, but but uh, but uh, but uh, but maybe something that looks also at you know what happened to the abolitionist project of an interracial democracy uh, mm-hmm. and of black citizenship, and and you know what happens during Reconstruction uh, in terms of implementing. Um, those ideas. Mm-hmm. So, so this next book is, and my dates for it actually uh, go from 1860. You know, when the war, uh, well, when South Carolina secedes. So, right from there um, to the 1890s, um, looking at you know what happened, what was won, and what was lost. I think we really need that in our times today. Okay, that sounds uh, sounds great. All right, let me um, some of these questions. Very interesting. Let's start with this one. Uh, what role, if any, do you find Christian churches playing in the abolitionist movement? They play a very important role, um, right from the Quakers, who sort of evoked the Christian sort of golden rule uh, against uh, slavery, um, to you know early um, Puritan abolitionists, many of them uh, who had adopted ideas of the dissenting Protestant sects of the English Civil War. They were quite radical. Um, I talk about in the book uh, the sort of religious inspirations of the abolitionists. And then uh, during the 1820s and 30s with the Second Great Awakening, you can see the sort of very important role that evangelical Christianity plays in the rise of abolition. But they're not the kind of evangelical fundamentalist Christianity that we know of today. Most of these Christian abolitionists um, tended to be like Weld, tended to be very progressive uh, in their ideas. Weld actually um, uh, wrote a pamphlet um, on on the Bible where he um, argues for kind of a liberal interpretation of the Bible um, to fight against slavery. If you're going to find abolition in the Bible, you can't be a literalist, right? No, he was not a fundamentalist, not a strict constructionist. Uh, He was not a fundamentalist. The people who were fundamentalists were actually... Uh, slaveholders yes, who were using the Bible to defend right. slavery, saying right. that the Bible actually, defa- you know, uh, condones slavery. Um, so I found the evangelicals of that time, like Weld, to be fairly progressive and broad-minded in their ideas. Now, there were certain things that certain evangelicals would not go along with, like women's rights. Absolutely. And that leads to a split in the movement between the Garrisonians uh, and the evangelicals. But those who were really progressive, like Weld, uh, eventually adopt women's rights, uh, and they sort of outgrow um, some of the more, um, um, you know, sort of narrow versions of religious benevolence and moral reform that was prevalent in the American Colonization Society, the American Tract Society, which distributed Bibles. In fact, they wanted to distribute Bibles to slaves, and Garrison and Douglas said, you know, well, slaves cannot learn. You first teach them how to read and write before you distribute Bibles to them. Or the American Sabbatarian Society, and Garrison says, every day is a Sabbath for me. And so those people were relatively conservative. Um, so I think abolitionist Christians tended to be far more progressive and broad-minded than, let's say, the, you know, what, we, what we associate with evangelical Christianity today. Mm-hmm. Uh, So here's a question, which is right up to date. Uh, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly's recent comments appear to indicate a wide gulf between versions of the Civil War and issues of slavery and racism, uh, a gulf 
between, I guess, what he thought and what probably historians have studied and said, etc. What can be done to bridge this gap? <laughs> they have to start reading more history and... <laughs> You know, I, I think uh, the excuse is that when they were in school, there was a certain version of Civil War history. But I don't think that's any, that, that's no excuse. Um, you know, I really think that we should have a march for history in Washington, D.C., the way they had the march for science. You know, the scientists had a march for science, but, you know, people deny climate change. They, it drives the scientists insane. When people deny the important role of slavery in causing the Civil War and what the Confederacy stood for, it drives me insane. I mean, I'm like, you know, we should be doing more, more history. And actually, my first book, the dissertation I wrote under Eric, was uh, on pro-slavery ideology and states' rights theory. Uh, it was on uh, South Carolina. They were the sort of leading secessionists in the South. Um, and, and there's no doubt uh, that in the South they were not fighting for any kind of nebulous Southern heritage. They're very clear that they are fighting to defend and perpetuate and expand slavery. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think maybe even sending them some documents from the Library of Congress like the declarations of secession <laughs> might be a good idea, you know, some I light think, reading. Um, I think you're barking up the wrong tree, but, um, <laughs> but um, I, I actually feel that uh, partly thanks to the work of institutions like this, exhibits it's had, uh, textbooks, I think are quite good now compared to what they were when I was in school, um, that modern views of the Civil War and slavery are pretty widely circulated. There, there's sort of there's a generational gap, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, people who were educated uh, somewhat before <laughs> or a while ago uh, have gotten a very different history than people who are in school today. And, uh, yeah. But um, it, it, definitely is, it definitely is a problem. Here's another question. Uh, early women's rights advocates and suffragettes played a crucial role in, the, in second wave abolitionism which I guess is the 1830s, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, if anything, did you learn in the course of your research that was new or significant about these women? So the one thing that I um, thought was very important was to resurrect some of these forgotten abolitionist feminists. Um, you know, we, when, when uh, we hear who? about... Just give us a couple of names. Uh, like Lucy Stone and Abby Kelly, uh, even some forgotten black women abolitionists like... Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who who lectured for both abolition and for women's rights. Sojourner Truth, of course, uh, some of us have heard of her. Um, but uh, the the narrative of women's rights is always told from the founding moment in Seneca Falls in 1848. And actually, long before that, you had abolitionist women like Abby Kelly in upstate New York, you know, talking about abolition and women's rights. I mean, Lucy Stone said, you know, I lecture for abolition during the week and for women's rights during the weekends. You know, she had an idea. And she, when she got married, she was the first American woman to actually retain her own surname. Uh, and American women who started doing that were known as Lucy Stoners. Stoners. Not stoners, as you would understand it, but... <laughs> But after Lucy Stone, uh, so these these women are forgotten. You know, we we hear and rightly so. We hear about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, but they came to abolition very late. 
Um, Anthony was a temperance advocate before uh, she joined the abolition movement in the late 1850s. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, her husband was an abolitionist. She herself was not that involved in the movement. So it's very important for us to remember their precursors. Uh, Even someone like Margaret Fuller, who wrote about women's rights and was one of the first women editors, you know, right here. She was in uh, New York, um, wrote for the New York Tribune. Um, These women and their ideas uh, is something that I really wanted to to sort of bring forth in the in the in the book. And I argue that the women's rights movement actually owes a lot more to these pioneering abolitionist feminists. Uh, and that in birthing the women's rights movement, abolition again kind of reveals its radical face. Yes, well, one, uh, these women kind of gained for women the right to speak in public, right? Abby Absolutely. Kelly went around and others lecturing, yeah. which was really considered, uh, you know, uh, not, not on by many, uh, many men, evangelicals and others. Exactly. But the abolitionist women really... F- got women a place in the public sphere, right? Absolutely. Uh, And it was a matter of controversy that they were doing that. It was seen as promiscuous. Women were seen as private domestic creatures. Mm -hmm. They were not supposed to be running around lecturing in public. Um, But, you know, as Angelina Grimke wrote, that in in fighting for the rights of the slaves, I realized that I had to vindicate my own right to speak up. Uh, And she's the one who actually uses the term human rights a lot. Uh, to talk about both the rights of enslaved people and women's rights. Uh, Or somebody like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who's virtually forgotten today. She was a black woman, an accomplished author, um, an accomplished lecturer. Uh, She was hired as a lecturing agent by the main anti-slavery society because uh, she was, you know, spoke so well. Uh, And she... um, you know, contributed a lot of money to the Underground Railroad, ended up fighting for women's rights uh, after the Civil War. Uh, She's virtually forgotten today. And so, yes, uh, I think it's important that, you know, um, that we look at some of these women who dared to defy Mm -hmm. convention um, in, in working for abolition. This week, Princeton University was in the New York Times for confronting its fraught history with slavery. What responsibility do public-facing institutions have to uncover and tell these stories? I think uh, it is important for us to um, look at our own institutions. And I know, Eric, you've done some work at Columbia. You know, there's been this project that began at Brown and then at Harvard and other places that have been uncovering the legacies of slavery at these institutions. Um, Craig Stephen Wilder, in his fantastic book, Ebony and Ivy, has shown how complicit uh, many institutions of higher learning were in upholding slavery. When I was doing my research, I found something really interesting. Uh, Many of these universities um, that were elite institutions even then and dominated by, you know, clergymen, etc., they all tended to be colonizationists. Mm -hmm. And their students were the radicals who were abolitionists. Uh, And sometimes they were black students, uh, who challenged, uh, for instance, in, in, in Princeton, a black abolitionist, um, you know, his, his professors told him, you're going to stop taking your paper or any of your pamphlets because you're against colonization. So they now, were challenging there. I don't think he was a student. I don't think Princeton was, had black students, but he was lived in Princeton. He lived in Princeton. Princeton had he, a pretty significant black community. Yeah, but he, he went and attended, I think, yeah. some of the 
uh, lectures. He was not allowed in. It had a huge Southern student population that was right. pretty racist and violent against uh, African Americans and attacked him actually in a chapel right. once. Right. Um, but there, there were colonizationists. Many of the college administrations at that time were dominated, like Wesleyan. Uh, Princeton, Yale, a lot of them had um, uh, colonizationists who were part of the college administration. Um, so, in, for instance, Pennington, uh, when he tried to take theology classes in Yale, um, they would have him sit in one corner by himself and not fraternize with any of the students. Uh, and he eventually got a doctorate in divinity from the University of Heidelberg, the first African-American to do so. Uh, an honorary doctorate. Um, but but you can see even their white students, some of the more radical white students, um, were far more sympathetic to abolition uh, than they were to colonization. And there was some conflict there. That is a part of the story that I think hasn't been told because people have been looking more at the connections of the institutions mm-hmm. themselves right. uh, to slavery and the slave right. trade. Uh, let's see, Dale is giving me, we have time for what, maybe one more question or? Five minutes, okay. Two more questions, maybe. Um, uh, let me just see what these questions are. Uh, all right, let's try this one here. How do you interpret the inconsistencies between the declarations of people like James Madison, who was also in the New York Times recently, uh, who yeah. argue for, that, for a constitution to declare slavery as an evil yet did not free their slaves? Yeah. Madison, Jefferson, many of these Virginians, yeah. right, talked against slavery, owned slaves, did not free their slaves, etc. Yeah. So, yes, during the revolutionary era, especially the sort of Virginian founding fathers, all of them were slaveholders. And and you can see them sort of saying this, uh, you know, Madison would say that, you know, his runaway slave, Billy, valued liberty as much as he did. He actually said that. But... <laughs> He still did not, you know, free his slaves. Uh, similarly, Jefferson has these sort of abstract condemnations of slavery, but then has certain ideas of race where he feels that you could not free black people unless you sort of remove them all from the country. Um, and Washington is, is an exception there. He actually freed his slaves, but he freed them only after, he said they, after his wife's death, Right. Uh, and then his wife, Martha Washington, freed them all because she was scared they'd kill her in order to get their freedom. So she freed them immediately. But the fact that Washington actually freed his slaves is important, even though he pursued one of his runaway slaves all the way to New Hampshire. And the postmaster at New Hampshire told him, well, you may be the president of the United States, but you're not sending her back. Uh, and that was interesting for me that that could happen at that time. Uh, but whatever Washington did, he at least had the decency to free his slaves in his will. And a black abolitionist, Richard Allen, you know, he gave one of the most wonderful eulogies on Washington, uh, where he sought to say that, you know, this is the father of the country, that maybe all slaveholders should emulate his act. Uh, the point is that I think most of the Southern founding fathers, uh, like Patrick Henry, who confessed to a Quaker abolitionist, that his livelihood depended on slavery, and therefore he he could not get rid of uh, his he could not emancipate his slaves. Um, most of the Southern founding fathers stood by slavery, but most of the Northerners, like John Jay, Hamilton, 
Franklin, you know, they may not have been active establishments, but they lend the prestige of their names to the new abolition societies. So you see somewhat of a sectional divide. So I think it's wrong to say, on the one hand, that the entire founding generation were anti-slavery because they, you know, clearly weren't. They said one thing, they did other things. But it's also wrong to say that they were all racist and they had no idea about ending slavery because there were some of them who saw this problem uh, and at least towards the end of his life, Franklin is is very much associated with the abolition movement. He's a president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, and he writes satires against a Southern congressman who, you know, um, dismiss abolitionist petitions. Um, so there is a divide there, and I think uh, with the founding generation, they are troubled with the discrepancy and the people who never failed to remind them of the discrepancy, of course, abolitionists and African-Americans, who in their freedom petitions, their freedom suits, uh, you know, constantly talk about uh, the gap between rhetoric and practice in the new republic. Well, I think we have reached the end of our hour. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.